Ordinary, said Aunt Lydia, is what you are used to. This may not seem ordinary to you now, but after a time it will. It will become ordinary. It's like a really good point. Yeah, great quote. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being our alibi. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas. And my name is Christian. And no, we won't do any off-something jokes for that one. My name is Annika and I was invited as a guest slash alibi for this podcast. Well, but also as an expert. Annika, you are in the final stages of finishing a PhD thesis on dystopian fiction, are you not? I am. I'm glad you mentioned it. <laughs> I'm sure you love thinking about all the revision and editing you have to do. And as it is about dystopian fiction, uh, you also look at Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, the book that we're discussing today. Exactly. The Handmaid's Tale is indeed a piece of dystopian fiction. The novel takes place in the distant future of 2005 in the United States, which have been turned into a theocracy ruled by a non-defined Protestant group calling itself the Sons of Jacob. In this theocratic society, women are reduced to fulfilling certain roles that basically can be summed up as wives, workers and mothers. The novel is narrated by one of these women, Offred, who has the unenviable task of being a handmaiden. That is, she has been tasked with producing a child for a member of the ruling class whose wife cannot have children as most women can't. So Offred's position is actually a very precious one, but she is treated more or less like a sex slave. Offred describes her everyday life the horrors and the oppression she and the other handmaidens have to endure in Gilead, as these United States are called by now. But things are also changing. The commander she has to have sex with shows some interest in her and seems to like her more than he should. There are hints that there is some sort of secret rebellion going on that might want to recruit Offred for their purposes. In the end, well... It's left ambiguous whether she can actually escape the horrors of Gilead to the freedom of Canada or whether she's actually taken away and has to endure a similar fate like her mother or her friend Moira. Annika, could you tell us a little something about Margaret Atwood who wrote this book in 1985? Sure. So Margaret Atwood is really a literary phenomenon. So she was born in 1939 in Ottawa, so she's Canadian. And she worked as a literary scholar and a critic for quite some time before she actually became famous for her poetry. In 1969 her first novel, The Edible Woman, was published, but her career really kicked off, as you already mentioned, in 1985 with The Handmaid's Tale, which to this day is read and beloved by people all over the planet. I read a review in The Guardian that says, and I quote, Once or twice in a generation, a novel appears that vaults out of the literary choral to become a phenomenon familiar to people who have never read the book. George Orwell's 1984 is one, Margaret Edwards' The Handmaid's Tale is another. Apart from that, Margaret Edwards is famous for her other dystopian fictions. For instance, she published the first dystopian trilogy ever, the Oryx and Craig trilogy. And um, yeah, she's really a household name of literary dystopia. 
One more thing which I found very interesting is that she's part of the Future Library project. That is a Norwegian project. For this project, every year one writer is selected and these writers contribute one text which will be sealed and which cannot be read before the year 2114. So we'll have 100 years of stories um, and the twist is um, the artist has planted a forest and these trees will be ready in 100 years and then they will be turned into paper and these stories will then be printed on paper. Um, the idea being that you actually appreciate um, the natural resources you need. So this fits well into Edward's work because she periodically returns to questions about the ecosystem, about man's place and cosmos and nature, but also capitalism and of course gender and the role of women, which is so prominently featured in The Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's Tale was a successful and popular book ever since its uh, publication, but it has seen a lot of attention more recently as well. To quote the inside cover of The Testaments, the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale that was published this year, actually just a couple of months ago. The Handmaid's Tale went back into the bestseller charts with the election of Donald Trump when The Handmaid's became a symbol of resistance against the disempowerment of women and with the 2017 release of the award-winning TV series. So that shows two rather nice aspects of literary success at work here. On the one hand, contemporary relevance, uh, when we're seeing increasingly authoritarian misogynistic regimes in the world, The Handmaid's Tale is successful but also just because it's on TV now, so more people hear about it. And The Handmaid's Tale was one of the first books we said we would discuss when we relaunched this podcast a couple of months ago. Uh, we really felt that it was one of the best regarded and most relevant books to our time. So Annika, <laughs> as you are the resident expert on dystopian fiction and The Handmaid's Tale, what aspect of the book would you like to discuss in this episode? I would actually like to talk about the end, but that's probably not a good way to start this podcast. It is a good way to start because reading this for the first time, the ending is the thing that gave me most thought. Yeah, the same here. I was kind of confused by it, kind of irritated by it, and it was on my list of potential topics to discuss as well. So let's start with the ending. So the ending is actually a kind of epilogue, a frame narrative that is set in the future of the story world at a conference where academics are actually discussing The Handmaid's Tale as a series of found manuscripts, more or less. And this, at first glance for me at least, was kind of alienating. You have this transcript of someone explaining the story to you again. And first you think, this is really unnecessary. This is breaking the power of Offred's narration. This is kind of a gimmick. But then you realize, hang on, this is a man talking about this story of a woman. And he kind of misreads the whole thing. Annika, I think this is probably why you want to talk about the ending, me, a man, telling you what you want to talk about. <laughs> exactly, because it recontextualizes the entire narrative to a certain degree. So we basically end with Alfred entering a van and we never know whether this car will actually get her to safety or whether the henchmen of Gilead have captured her. Then we were presented with this, with this break, new narrative style, new topic. And this professor basically contextualizes Gilead as a time gone by. So on the one hand, this epilogue makes Gilead less 
frightening because we as a reader get to know, okay, it's done, it's in the past, we've gotten over it. But then um, we as readers realize that this new society, this society which has produced academics um, of the type of Professor Piexotto, is actually very similar to the misogynistic society that we just left. So it's actually a very bleak ending, because although we've left Gilead behind, the mechanisms of misogyny and sexism are still in place. Professor Piexotto says at one point in his talk that we should not judge Gilead, but try to understand it. And that sounds disturbingly uh, relevant as well, with people saying, oh, you know, of course, sometimes people do these horrible things, but let's not judge them. Let's move forward and try to talk to them and work with them, which I think is a fundamentally wrong-headed approach in case of someone doing as abhorrent things as the regime of Gilead. What I found interesting as well is that this made me realize that this narrative gimmick, more or less, makes clear that The Handmaid's Tale is about storytelling. Offred is trying to tell her story from her perspective. And we don't realize that while reading it, because her perspective is very much colored by the Stark world she lives in, but there's a rich inner life and she really, really tries to gain power over her surroundings by storytelling, more or less. And so this frame narrative kind of takes that away to a certain degree. Um, but it also makes us realize, okay, who can tell a story? Who has the power to tell the story of a nation, of a society, or of one person? I also found it interesting, which Actually, it's something that you pointed out to me in a previous conversation, Annika. At several points, The Handmaid's Tale, the narrative that we've just read, is ridiculed. That there is laughter that he casts aspersions on Offred and her authenticity. Which basically is a gut punch because you feel like, hang on, I just invested so much in this woman and I followed her struggle and I felt her pain. And now you're making fun of it? What the fuck? Exactly. So it's, so it's not only that, but it's also full of um, old men's humour, basically. So the male professor actually plays around with the meaning or with the pronunciation of the word tail. So tail in the sense of narration, but tail also in the sense of, yeah, well, penis. We have a male narrator overwriting what we just heard from a female voice. So what do we do with that? Fucking boomers. Destroying things even in the future. <laughs> Speaking of the future, Annika, the reason you are writing about The Handmaid's Tale is that it is dystopian fiction, and that makes it usually at least part of the science fiction genre. That is correct. Now, Margaret Atwood has had, a, let's say, kind of difficult relationship with the term science fiction. She, <laughs> she really doesn't seem to like it that she much. She really doesn't like it. She prefers the term speculative fiction. Talking about that, science fiction for me is not a, a kind of bad word. Science fiction can tell us usually, if it's good, a lot about our society. And this is exactly what The Handmaid's Tale does, kind of exaggerating certain things, kind of projecting, but it is in the end about our world, our society, or at least the world of 1985. Do you think that it's fair to reduce The Handmaid's Tale to science fiction or dystopian fiction or is that not a reduction at all? It's definitely not fair. It's definitely not, not fair to the entire to the entire genre because, as you already said, it talks about the now. This is why Edward prefers the term speculative fiction because she says science fiction has this quality of 
you know, it's just unlikely, it's spaceships and it's aliens and whatnot. And she actually wants to write about things that could really, really happen. She also stresses that she only writes about things that actually have happened. So she is very keen on pointing out that nothing in The Handmaid's Tale is made up. So it's real-world atrocities committed in, let's say, the Middle Ages, also some countries of today that she puts into fiction. Uh, that is actually brought up in the epilogue as well. Uh, specifically, Iran is mentioned and uh, Romania, which uh, in the 80s, so as the novel was written, banned contraception and basically tried to enforce procreation in its citizens. I think that gives the novel kind of its weird power, that on the one hand, there are sometimes aspects where you think that is not really the future. This also almost seems antiquated. And the focus on, for example, this strange coalition between uh, conservatives and the women's movement against pornography, which was more of an issue in the 70s and 80s. And then again, there are aspects where you just get a chill because you realize this is something that is going on right the fuck now. Well, one thing I realized that is kind of fun, even though Atwood is hesitant about the term science fiction, she is not hesitant about embracing popular culture. She loves the TV show, apparently, and has been influenced by that in writing The Testaments, the sequel. Uh, she has also written a comic book, for example. So Atwood is not some highfalutin, literary-minded, ivory tower person. I think that The Handmaid's Tale is supposed to be read by many people and enjoyed by many people as a, maybe a piece of, of genre fiction. I would like to come back to something that you said, Annika, that Atwood always stresses that everything that she describes has happened and has been perpetrated. The aspect I would like to discuss is The Handmaid's Tale's troubling relationship with race. Because more often than not, basically always in the US, the people, or specifically the women who received this horrendous treatment that uh, Atwood describes, were black or indigenous or Hispanic women. Things like uh, forced sterilizations, forced impregnation as well, the serial rape of slaves in the uh, 18th and 19th century in order to produce children and then sell them. Uh, that is something that is very prominent in the story and that was very prominent in reality as well. Even beyond those aspects, though, the very fundamental device of the book, The Plummeting Birth Rates, which in big, big quotes necessitate the system of handmaids, are sort of a white supremacist trope. In the epilogue, it's mentioned that it was plummeting Caucasian birth rates. So Gilead is an explicitly white supremacist society. But also, if you talk about plummeting birth rates, you quickly get into things like white genocide mythology and the racist canard of overpopulation in Africa and Asia. It is really prevalent in dystopian fiction from the 70s and 80s. I wonder where it comes from. It's probably not from a good place. And there are these echoes of slavery in The Handmaid's Tale. For example, the route of escape that Moira tries to go on and that eventually Offred maybe goes on is called the Underground Female Road, reference to the Underground Railroad. These racial aspects are in there, but all the characters in the novel are white. There is one mention of black people, and that is fairly towards the end, where um, a news report talks about the resettlement of the children of Ham. So referencing the evangelical myth that black people were descended from the murderous son of Noah after the flood. 
Also, in the epilogue, there is discussion of the anti-Semitic policies of Gilead, which I've briefly brought up before, but the true horrors of the deportation of Jewish people and the mass murder of them on the transports towards Israel aren't really gone into in any great detail as well. So, we are all white. We should add that. Um, yes. Uh, how do we feel about this troubling racial aspect of The Handmaid's Tale? Does it lessen its impact? This is always a difficult question. The issue of intersectionality sometimes makes missing a certain point, in this case the issue of race, seem almost yeah, like a like an ignorant measure. For me, there's no place for me to discuss this. As a white, cis, straight man, I'm not the one to talk about this. But one thing that might add is that this is very much the perspective of yes a white woman that doesn't make it less powerful in the description of what this white woman has to endure in this society and maybe that is even it's kind of a first world problem thing that in this society it is even those privileged white women even they are reduced to basically slaves the dystopia of The Handmaid's Tale is that now white women are treated the way black people have been treated throughout American history. And as you mentioned, the black people are treated even worse. Yeah. It is not a black perspective, but it, it, it doesn't portray the victimization of uh, women in a kind of relativizing way. I would like to offer a historical perspective on this question. When we talk about dystopian fiction, we usually talk about a genre that is dominated by male narrators. When we look at the big three of the genre, those who have really defined the entire genre, we talk about George Orwell's 1984, we talk about um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and We by the Russian author um, Zamyatin. So all of them, and many of their successes, actually had male narrators only. And then Margaret Atwood comes along, and offers us the first female narrator, or one of the first, don't quote me on this, and gives us this first female writer. Yes, I absolutely agree with you, it's not enough. But speaking historically, The Handmaid's Tale really was a progress in that direction. We have later authors like Octavia Butler and her Parable of Sorrow, where we have a black female narrator. So, speaking from a historical perspective, I would credit her with the first step into a more diverse direction. So, we already mentioned that this is, for the most part at least, the narrative of Ofrid. And so, it is just fitting to talk about the style. How is this bleak world, how is Gilead with all its horrors presented? The Handman's Head is a very interesting book because it's actually not a book at all. It is the recordings of Ofrid after she's managed to escape Gilead. The style should imitate dialogue, it should imitate diary, writing. This is interesting because this focus on language, the power of language, the power of narratives that you already mentioned, um, reappears on this level as well. It's really interesting, as you said, this focus on language also leads to a really over-stylized style, for lack of a better expression, where you often at the end of paragraphs or chapters have sentences like this. I listen to my heart, wave upon wave, salty and red, continuing on and on, marking time. That is almost overwrought. That is so close to being cloying and weird. But it didn't bother me, really, because she, she pulls it off. 
Atwood manages this sort of tightrope dance of focusing on language so much and making language such a big part of both the narration and the style, but not overdoing it. I think it kind of fits that Offred, faced with the utter limitation of what she's able to do in this world, at least in the outside world, goes inward and focuses on the richness of language and the richness of her memories as well. What I found really fascinating there is how ambivalent and detailed her descriptions are. It could be all bleak, it could be all just darkness and horror and woe is me, but Offred is a funny narrator at times. When she remembers certain things from her past, it's not just all nostalgia. The relationship with her husband Luke, for example, is shown in all its kind of ugly sides as well. How Offred sees men, even in Gilead, is a kind of, again, ambivalent view, even though they are the oppressors. She sees their weak sides, she sees their positive sides, which doesn't make the dreadfulness of this male-dominated society any less powerful, but which shows how good of an observer she really is. An interesting thing about the style is that it really talks to the reader, that you really feel like she's addressing you, because her last words, so the end of the chapter, um, really lingers, and it really gets you. You have to you have to think about it, um, and it gets you emotionally, so... And she addresses the reader as well. Yeah. She says, I'm not sure if anyone is ever going to hear my story, but I throw all my hope on you that that you will know about me. We could talk about so many more topics, um, so many more aspects, but in the end, we come down to the things that really struck us, that we really liked or that we really disliked. The best and the worst, or the escape to Canada and the wall. Jonas, what did you think was the best? I struggled for a long time to think whether I would say this as the best or the worst, but I eventually decided to put it as the best because it is an immensely powerful part of the story. In a flashback where Offred thinks about how she tried to escape together with her husband Luke, she remembers that the night before the attempt they realized what are we going to do with the cat? Because if we leave it, it's going to make a ruckus and the neighbors are going to notice. If we let it outside, it's going to try to get in and the neighbors are going to notice that we're gone. And so Luke says, I'm going to take care of it. Takes the cat to the garage and well we don't know what he does there but the cat doesn't appear again. And as an animal lover and a cat lover especially I found that absolutely heartbreaking and horrifying. So that was one of those moments of the novel that really struck me and really grabbed me by the jugular. One thing that I already kind of hinted at is the surprising humor that is in the novel. This makes the whole depiction of Gilead maybe more bearable but it also shows how ridiculous such totalitarian regimes are. The one example I want to mention is the names of the shops that Offred and her other handmaidens go to, because obviously they have to have biblical names that are also fitting to what they sell. All flesh for a butchery and milk and honey for a grocery store. This is so ridiculous. But on the other hand, you could imagine something like that in some weird theocratic regime. So it's kind of a very dark humor. I think what really stuck in my head is that one sentence that Offred finds in, in a closet. And it's vulgar Latin, forgive me for my pronunciation, Nolite de Bastardes Halbondorum. That's, I guess that's it. Don't let the bastards get you or hold you down. And then kind of find it inspiring because it has this privacy to it that isn't allowed to exist in this world. And yet it has managed to survive this little piece of 
Well, it's not even a piece. They carved it into the wood. These words survive and these words give Alfred the strength and the courage to actually do what she has to do. And if I had to reduce the book to a sentence or to one description, it would probably be that tiny quote. But sometimes the bastards do grind you down. So Jonas... <laughs> Sign the bastard of this, that's nice. <laughs> Basically, the thing I like least about The Handmaid's Tale is its contemporary relevance and perception. On the one hand, because it's upsetting that it is so relevant right now, but also because the problematic aspects of it are not very well reflected. Incidentally, there is a great article by uh, Priya Nair on Bitch Media from 2017, which we're going to link in the show notes, where um, I got a lot of the things I said from this episode. In 2017, the show came out and Atwood started talking about The Handmaid's Tale a lot more, and now in 2019 she published The Testaments. A sequel that basically doesn't improve on The Handmaid's Tale, rather the opposite, it basically just adds more plot, and it doesn't have the linguistic and stylistic richness of the original. I mean, if Margaret Atwood wants to publish her short story ideas and uh, her rough chapter notes uh, because she wants to buy a new lake house or, let's be charitable, endow a scholarship for women at university, she can do that, of course, and it is very successful, but the way it is received and the way people fawn over it is, in my view at least, not justified. The Testaments won the Man Booker Prize. For the first time in decades, the prize has been split. And the other winner, Bernadine Evaristo, is the first ever black woman to win this prize or to co-win it now. And to Edward's credit, apparently she was similarly shocked when her win was announced and she seemed rather unhappy about it. So it is kind of galling mm. though that whereas The Handmaid's Tale is a feminist text written by a white woman the Testaments is a white feminist text, which even 34 years later ignores the racialized aspects of the regime of Gilead and doesn't expand the focus of the dystopia. The thing that I probably like the least is a very nerdy thing. It's the world building. The Republic of Gilead is obviously based on reality, but there are some aspects to it that are, well, speculative. And in some cases, reading those descriptions of how the foreign policy works, how the inner workings of Gilead are, I just had to stop and think, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. Now, I know this is not what the novel is about. This is not some detailed description of a potential world with maps and everything. But I think that's a general problem I sometimes have with dystopian fiction. They focus so much on the negative de depictions of this world that the inner workings that just have to function are sometimes disregarded. And I think in some aspects, at least, The Handmaid's Tale also does that, focusing on how horribly oppressive the system is, but not whether this system could actually work as a system. The problem that I have with The Handmaid's Tale is similar to... Jonas argument. I love the book. It's not about the book. It's about the series, actually. Disclaimer, I haven't actually seen it, but I actually do not want to after what I've learned about it. So season one and two seem to be pretty good, but then season three diverts from the book because obviously they're done with the book. They've filmed everything. So what are they going to do? And all the articles I read accuse the series of being torture porn, of really betraying the ideals that the book stands for and I tend to agree because a couple of months ago I went to the website of I think it's Hulu who produces the show and they sell merchandise and one piece of merchandise you can buy there is actually a paperweight in the form of a stone used in the book to actually stone people to death I didn't like that aspect of it too much so I love the book 
But the merchandise and everything around it is kind of problematic though. If you want to hear more about the series, you should subscribe to our Patreon, where Christian and I will uh, discuss the Hulu and Channel 4 adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale in a bonus episode. But in the end, we have one question that we always ask. Is it actually any good? Christian, what do you say? Hell yeah. What can you say? It, it, it almost feels cliched to recommend The Handmaid's Tale because so many people have picked it up and have rediscovered it in our times. But it is just an enormously good book. It is chillingly relevant. It is complex. It is really one of those books where it's hard even to find something to, to criticize, in my opinion at least. You should read The Handmaid's Tale and maybe you have to, basically. I'm certainly glad I finally came around to doing so. I would say I agree, but I cautiously agree. It is a very good book. It is very well written and it has power, but it is clearly an artifact of its time and... I would just recommend you ignore all the viscera, everything that came after it, ignore the show, ignore the sequel, just read The Handmaid's Tale. That's nothing to add to it. Yeah, I agree with you guys. Mansplaining at its best. <laughs> Yay! Validation! <laughs> yeah. If we don't recommend the show and the sequel, what do we recommend? What should you check out in addition to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale? I'm kind of fed up, to be honest, with dystopias. Um, oh. I'm sorry, Annika, I know. <laughs> I mean, if anyone had a right to be fed up with them, <laughs> it would be you, come on. Maybe it's also because there's so much dystopian shit going on when you just turn on the news. But I have grown more interested in and actually this resurgence in utopias, in utopian fiction, or at least fiction that focuses more on good things or fighting for good things. Hashtag Hopepunk. And the book I would like to recommend is actually a graphic novel. It's called On a Sunbeam by Tilly Walden. And it is... Genre-wise, a lot of things. It's a space opera, it's a coming-of-age story, it's sometimes even a western, but it takes place in a universe where there are no men. And this is never explained, this is never even kind of addressed, but it is just a world of women. And it is, at its emotional core, how to deal with conflicts in a non-confrontative way. There's still violence, there's still action, there's still the things you want from a space opera. But this is the kind of utopia I hope to read more about in the future. Even a utopia where I maybe am obsolete. On a Sunbeam by Tilly Walden. You say there's a lot of dystopian shit going on when you turn on the news now. I would say it could get worse. So I want to recommend a podcast, which definitely also falls within the category of speculative fiction. It Could Happen Here by Robert Evans, a conflict journalist who reported from Ukraine, from Iraq, reported on the Syrian refugee crisis. He knows what he talks about and he interviewed experts as well about could this happen in the US? And he says he was shocked to find that all the experts he talked to said, oh yeah, definitely. And in the 10 episode series, he lays out the factors that could lead to a second American Civil War and what the results would be. So basically this fills in the gap of how Gilead came to be or could 
come to be. So my recommendation is It Could Happen Here by Robert Evans. I would like to recommend a novel by Emily St. John Mandel. Isn't that a delicious, wonderful name? Emily St. John, John Mandel. Mandel. Mm-hmm. And the novel is called Station Eleven. So this is also one of these bizarre genre blends that we talked about. So it's not a dystopian fiction, it's not post-apocalyptic fiction, it's not utopian, but it's kind of a mixture of all those three. So what's going on? So basically a pandemic called Georgian flu has wiped out 98% of the world's population but, and this is the interesting thing, nothing really happens. So we don't have zombie apocalypse, we don't have chaos, we actually get a rather peaceful but also very melancholic post-pandemic world. We follow our narrator, a young woman who has joined a group of actors is a group of musicians who actually travel the country to bring people culture. With the breakdown of civilization, electricity is gone, libraries are gone, this group, they bring them the works of Shakespeare, um, they bring them the great symphonies of Mozart, Beethoven, whatever. And it's actually quite peaceful and I, I really love the idea that the best of humanity, so the best of literature, the best of music, will still be around after a catastrophe like that. The idea behind the Travelling Symphony is actually a quote from Star Trek. Survival is not enough. So this is what Spock tells Kirk. And I really, I just like the idea of a peaceful post-pandemic world in which literature and civilization kind of survive. We probably miss a ton of things. There's so many things we didn't address and if you want to scream at us for missing them, why don't you do so via email, for example? If write to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, outsideofadogcast.com and you could give us a rating and a review. That would be really helpful. Thank you. We also have a Twitter account, Outside of a Hound. And you can go to patreon.com slash outside of a dog, where we upload monthly bonus episodes about the adaptations of the books that we discuss. I still need people to proofread my dissertations if you want to do that. So write <laughs> mails to us as well. We'll, yeah. we'll connect you. Annika, thank you so much for coming yes. along and discussing The Handmaid's Tale with us. Thank you for having me. I hope we were not too bad in our mansplaining. Mm, that's all right. I forgive you. As a white European woman, on behalf of all the women out there, I will forgive you. Jonas, after we as men have solved the problems of women in the world, what do we do next? We're recording this episode just before Halloween. But the next episode is going to come out around Christmas. So, what could be more appropriate than both a ghost story and a Christmas story? Which is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Georgian because of um, the American Georgia, not the Russian Georgia. Not Russian Georgia, Georgia Georgia. Georgia Georgia, I know. <laughs> Caucasian Georgia, oh no. Uh, mm, uh, back to that, mm, yeah. Uh, you just cut it out.